Welcome back to Always Evolving. My next guest is really a legend in the writing, authoring. He's created so many different projects that have had massive success. So many number one New York Times bestsellers. Uh, Mitch Album is joined Always Evolving today. You may know him from Tuesdays with Maury or uh, his latest book, Finding Chica but he's written so many books we're gonna talk about today. So thanks for joining us, Mitch. Hi. When I say you're creatively, I think you're creatively brilliant because you really seem to be able to communicate in such a way that people connect with what you put out. I'm just curious, like I know I talked to you briefly when we were over at Dr. Phil and I was asking you about your writing process but when did you realize that you were such a communicator with your art? Well, I think, you know, I, I've always been good at telling stories. And I always say that's pretty much the only talent I have. I just do it in a lot of different mediums. So, you know, I've told stories in newspapers, and newspaper comms and books in movie scripts and plays, but it's all kind of the same thing. And that comes from a, a family that always told a lot of stories around the dinner table, you know, and I came from my family. There were five of us, three kids and my parents, but then we had a very big extended family. And anytime we got together for holidays or things like that, it was very much like, if you can't tell a story, you can't hold the floor. So I'd have some aunts who would get lost in the details. You know, they'd say, so, all right, it was 1945. No, maybe it was 46. Maybe it was, and everyone would say, ah, forget you, and they'd move on to somebody else. And I would watch this as a kid, and I would say, okay, the key is don't lose them with the details, you know, because then I'd have, like, my Uncle Eddie, and he would tell these war stories that were just great because he just knew how to cut right to the chase. He'd say, so there we were, coming over the hill, and the bombs were going off behind us. And anyway, I said, okay, that's how you tell a story. So I, I, I learned because, you know, I, eventually I got old enough, I wanted to tell some stories myself, and I learned, okay, you got to get rid of this stuff, keep this stuff. And that was the beginning of my learning how to how to write, even though I hadn't written anything at that point, didn't really learn how to write until my 20s. I didn't study writing in college or anything like that. But I was always a good communicator. I could always tell a good story. And so I think when I married words with what was already kind of my whatever natural gift I had, it just sort of made sense that I'd be able to write books that, you know, would be good stories. And and you started earlier in your career writing stories in sports, and you still do, you right. are in the sports world. Yeah. But did you feel like when you were in that space that you had a lot of creative freedom to tell the stories you really wanted to tell? Or was it kind of from the top down, they're like, no, Mitch, these are the stories we want? Well, I was really blessed in that I, I got to be a columnist very young. Uh, by 25, I was already a columnist. And columnists at newspapers are given the latitude to express their opinion on things and be creative with their writing, as opposed to a straight reporter who is obligated, at least supposed to be ethically, by just reporting the facts and not inserting opinion. So I was given a pretty wide berth even when I was was very young. And I worked for a newspaper, uh, first in Fort Lauderdale and then in Detroit, where I still am, that they encouraged me to do like the unusual thing. So within the first three or four years of my job as a columnist there, instead of just writing about the Detroit Tigers or the Detroit Lions or the football team, the baseball team, I had gone to the running of the Bulls in Pamplona. 
I had gone to the Iditarod in Alaska. I had covered all kinds of weird sports around around the world, and they liked it. They they encouraged it, and so um, I always learned that the thing about writing sports was I tried to write for the person who didn't know anything about sports. I always had like a grandmother in North Carolina in mind. You know, never went to a game, never understood the rules. Can I make this story interesting to her? If I can make this story interesting to her, then all the sports nuts. They're going to read it anyhow because they'll read everything that comes out about sports. But if I can make it interesting to that person who never knew anything about sports before, then I'm doing what a storyteller should do or what a columnist should do. I'm drawing the people in. And so I always focused on the human parts of the stories. I often wrote about the losers, not the winners, because more people can relate, quite frankly, to people who lose than, 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 than win and the second place finishers and things like that. And I try to always have some kind of human element in my sports stories. And I guess that when I was 37 and suddenly this opportunity came with an old professor of mine named Maury Schwartz to, to tell a story, not for the public. I was doing it to pay his medical bills, but, but it was so far afield, you would think, from sports. But really, it wasn't that far afield from the way I wrote sports and mostly about you know human beings and relationships and and so when Tuesdays with Maury, you know, sort of presented itself, I guess I was sort of ready. Right. And and, and ter- you're saying like in terms of telling a story, because you clearly have the art of storytelling, you the don'ts are having too many details. If you were to say, give me like, you know, the do's, the kind of like, here's what some magic is when you tell a story, do this. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to give away all my, all my secrets, uh, right here. Everyone's, so right, listen, right, Mitch, everyone's already copying you. So we're good. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, uh, your characters have to be interesting to people. Or I always, I always look at it as like, I'm trying to keep somebody's attention. There's a thousand things going on out there. The internet is calling them. Television is calling them. Sports are calling them. When you're today, if you're in the writing business, you're in that same entertainment swirl, same thing that you're in doing this podcast or doing Dr. Phil, same thing that Dr. Phil's in. He's in the same big swirling uh, uh, grasp for people's attention, whether it's the internet, the television, movies, music, whatever. Something is always trying to get their eye. And so am I. And so if I'm writing a book, first of all, if I have a character that nobody can relate to or nobody's interested in, you're dead in the water. Doesn't matter what plot you have or whatever. Nobody, people first want to relate to people. So the characters have to be relatable. Secondly, uh, don't take too long to start. I, I was, I was trained as a newspaper writer, as a columnist. And so I was always up against, are they going to read the second paragraph or are they going to go and turn the page and go to another page? So I always try to put everything like right in that first paragraph, make that first paragraph so interesting. And I remember when I was writing Tuesdays with Maury, uh, which was really sort of the first, you know, non-sports book that I was taking on. I was really struggling over the first page of it and first page of it. And the editor said to me, why are you, you know, killing yourself over this first page and rewrite? I said, because, you know, I don't want to lose them. He said, look, a book is not a newspaper column. OK, they're going to give you 10 or 15 pages before they give up on you. Don't try to make it all on the first page. So I didn't. But my instinct is still get people right from the very beginning, get something that happens. So, for example, in The Five People You Meet in Heaven, you know, one of my first novel and it's become a popular book. It begins with uh, this is a story about a man named Eddie. And it begins at the end 
with Eddie dying in the sun. You know, that's the first paragraph. You might think it's strange to start a story with an ending, but all endings are also beginnings. We just don't know it at the time. Well, that's just a couple sentences, but like to me, that's like, okay, wait, we're starting with a guy dying and and uh, and I don't know that this is the beginning or it's the ending. It's intriguing. It try, tries to, you know, pull you in. And I try to do that with all of my books. And that's another little piece of advice for people to do, you know, like make it interesting from the start because you're up against so much competition for people's eyes. Very few people anymore are going to pick up a book and say, well, I'll give it a hundred pages and see if I like it. They'll give you like, they'll give you six. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, I, I've come in recently to a lot of this. I think I've mentioned to you, it's just like, I was behind the scenes for years, two years ago, uh, Dr. Phil asked me to come on an episode and then all of a sudden I went on 40 episodes and it started taking off and I'm, and I've, I have a lot of friends. I'm always attracted to creative people. And, um, one of my friends who's been on the podcast a few times, his name's Richie Jackson. He's Lady Gaga's uh, choreographer, does a lot of her creative direction. And as my career in the last few years started to take off, I started to public speak more. And is really such an art like you're describing about, even if you're speaking, how do you start it? How do you grab their attention? How do you adjust your shirt? And how do you make that moment happen to, to get somebody's buy-in to then subscribe to the story. Because the worst thing, we were laughing about it last week, we were saying the worst thing you could do is go up on stage and you see it a lot and they go, sorry everyone, I'm really nervous. All of a yeah. sudden, we're not even focused on the story, we're, we're right. looking at your nerves. That's right. Well, you know, Shakespeare, uh, if you go and look a lot of his plays, his plays uh, began with battle scenes. And I found out when I went to England and met with some people there, you know, who know a lot more about Shakespeare than I do, that in his early days, they would start plays in the middle of the square. And so, you know, they didn't always have a theater. And so how do you get people's attention in the middle of the square? Well, you don't start it with a soliloquy. You don't start it with two people really quietly talking. You start it with a battle scene. You start two guys with sword fights, right? And they're going at it. So people start to gather in the square and start to watch it. And now they're into the play. So I thought, well, wow, if it worked for Shakespeare, you know, <laughs> it's, there's no shame in trying to do it yourself. So that's exactly what you're talking about there, too. You've been through so many cycles of books and projects, and four of your books have become TV movies, and you've written songs that have ended up, and in, in, you've done a, a lot, right? Everything from charitable work. And... I imagine there's been different times in your career where like you and, and Oprah always says success is cyclical, right? Like it kind of just goes like this. Do you like how do you manage? Because at one time you have a book like Tuesdays with Maury. I think you said it was number one on New York Times for like a year or something. Four right? years. How long? Four years. Four years. Four years. That's how long it takes to graduate college. Okay, <laughs> yeah. for an undergrad, for yeah, no one it. else got that spot for four years, and then as you come out with different projects, do you ever have that feeling like, do you guys know who I am, or like because you're not a flashy guy, right? Like you're not, but do you? How do you keep? Do you not care? Do you, are you just like I'm just focusing on the art of what I'm doing, or does anything kind of irk you? Well, not. Nothing really irks me because I think there's nothing, nothing was promised to me and I wasn't 
it wasn't like I was born and say, hey, you're, you're guaranteed to have X number of book sales. I, I'm all, I already, even before Tuesdays with Maury, you know, I had already had a lot of my dreams come true with regard to writing. I mean, I got a newspaper column when I was 25. I never thought I'd have that. And I started as a musician and had very, very low expectations. I thought if I ever earned $10,000 a year, you know, who could ever want more than that? And so, you know, I think a lot of you're forged a lot by what you think early on. And, and I did not succeed as a musician. So my early experience was failure, not success. You know, the thing I really love the most, being a musician, I, I, I could not make a living at. I, you know, nobody wanted to make my records. Nobody wanted to hire me for whatever it was at that time. And, and I went through two, three years of all the lights turning red instead of all the lights turning green. And I think when that happens to you when you're young, you always retain that. And so mm. even though now I've had many successes, as you referenced, I still, every time I put a book out, I expect the worst. I expect the lights to go red. And I'm always almost like taken aback when someone says it's good or someone says, yeah, we want to publish it. It's still to this day, even you know, 30 plus years later, I, I'm still oriented towards that early memory of failure. And so I don't really expect a lot. And I did, you know, even in music, I wanted to be a producer. I didn't want to be a rock star. I wanted to be the guy in the studio with all the little buttons and everything. That's, I would have been perfectly happy with that. So as an author, it's, it's more, you know, people don't really generally race up and scream and squeal and throw their clothes off at office. <laughs> generally the way it works. I mean, I'm sure there's some somewhere, but it isn't me. Uh, so I, I never got into it for that part of it. Um, I'm always pleased when people say, you know, your book changed my life or mm. your that story changed. Or we read it at my father's funeral or or I was feeling so down and I read it and it changed. Things. And, and, you know, because then they're saying the work that you did had an effect on my life. They're not saying you had an effect on my life. You know, you, you know, I, I look you up wherever you go. I, I think that would be a little odd almost. I, I don't envy movie stars and people like that who, who, who get fans, but they're, they're less fans of their work than they are of their personalities for some reason or their looks. My fans read my books. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anybody out there who likes me but hates my books. I think it's, you know, there'd be no point. So um, I'm quite happy with this sort of little corner of the world of being known without it being about your face or your personality or whatever, but being about the work that you do. Well, I'm curious because you're at so many levels, know so much about journalism, right? And yeah. what have you seen really change um, since you, you've been in journalism and you can also step out and look at it. I'm, I'm more on the outside, right? Like I grew up, you know, reading the, the, the LA times or USA today on planes and, you know, kind of what, what has really changed for the good and maybe the not so good. A lot, you know, I've been in it a long time. I got in it very young. Um, so the better part of 30 plus years. And I would say that you heard me mention before, like a columnist, that the role of the columnist was the one part in the newspaper where you were permitted to express your opinion. That has disappeared. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much delineation anymore between a reporter, a feature writer, a columnist. There's so much personal opinion in it and so much slant and so 
little interest in getting the factual parts of the story, which are so critical, because history will look back and say, well, what happened during that time? And nobody's really writing what happened. They're writing what they think or what they think should happen or what their, their opinion is of somebody. And it's going to be very hard years from now to really be able to, to glean, you know, okay, what were the facts of the situation? Not what did people think about it? Also, it's gotten very angry, you know, mm. that you can't seem to get a name for yourself in this business anymore unless you're willing to just strike somebody down or go after somebody or be venomous, uh, you know, be a pit bull. And those are the people who get attention. Those are the people who get their own shows. Those are the people who get frequently on television. And it's, it's, it's permeated. There also was a great difference between print journalism and TV journalism back when I was first coming up. In fact, they had rules for years when I first started. You could not go on television. If you work for a newspaper, it was considered, you know, first of all, they're competitors. Secondly, there's a different set of principles, whatever. And you've got to make a choice. I remember newspaper people saying to me, bosses, you want to go on television? You got to make a choice, one or the other. You can't do it. Then they slowly started to let people go on panel shows, and you know, as long as they identified themselves from the newspaper. And then newspapers began to shrink and lose business in a tremendous rate. Television became bigger and bigger. And it became untenable for newspapers to tell their people you can't be on TV because people would say, OK, bye bye. I'm going to television. So the only way to sort of keep them was to allow them to cross section. But now it's hard to tell the difference between any of it anymore. So I would say that's the biggest thing. It's gotten louder. It's gotten angrier. It's gotten less responsible and far, far, far more opinionated uh, to the point that I would recommend to anybody who really seriously wants to understand what's going on in the world. You must read at least five sources every day and make sure that those sources run the gamut, certainly of the political spectrum, because if you're just watching CNN, just watching Fox News, just reading the New York Times, you are not really understanding what's really going on 360 degrees uh, for you to be able to choose, OK, this is my this is my. Uh, understanding of what's going on in the world based on hearing five different people. It's like if you have five kids and you let one kid tell you who was responsible for breaking the, the, the sugar bowl, right? And you don't hear the other four kids' stories. Okay, you're, you're going with that one, but you better make sure that that's the right one. And how do you think it could end up? Because sometimes over time, right, things really fragment, they fracture, they break apart, they get rebuilt, reinvented. Because I have to imagine there's a lot of people, I'm one of those people that that misses and loves actual like uh, balanced perspective and approach and feel like I'm reading something, but I don't even really know the the writer's opinion. Like there's no slant. It's not trying to convince me. Do you, how do you think it could end up there because I know a lot of people really want that a lot. Like I'm not attracted to angry journalism. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, I, I just go, ugh. well, I think you're in the minority though. Really? Uh, I think, yes. I think both from a ratings point of view and from a sales point of view in the respective industries, the evidence shows that more people are interested in the louder opinionated person or type of presentation of the news than they are of the straight balance one. Trust me, if there wasn't money in it, it wouldn't be heading that way. And sadly, to answer the other part of the question, as you asked it, do I think it can change or go back or how will it, what will happen in the future? I don't. I think people are sort of headed toward just picking 
their news, the way that they pick sort of their, their favorite coffee place. They like that one. You like that one. And never the twain shall meet, you know, and, and they want to, you know, everybody's got their device. First of all, everybody's attention span is five seconds. They're getting their news from Twitter, from Facebook. These aren't journalistic places, you know, YouTube. And, and yet they're perfectly content to say, well, I'll just, if it's important, somebody will tweet it out. That's, that's not, that's not really the way you should understand the world. So I, I don't have a lot of optimism about it. And, yeah. And, and to your point, it's the same thing with people who really, you know, I, working with entertainers for many years and traveling the world and you see how people respond as fans to it's the same idea of loving someone so much because of what you see on Twitter or loving someone so much just because it, it's just it's kind of, um, you know, I, I like find I find this culture of lifting up people to be voices or having megaphones has felt lately like it's extreme degrees of who they're going to give the microphone to. It's like, what's going to be the loudest, right? Like what's right. going to be the noisiest. And I don't know. I, I surely hope, at least I hope to channel and be around people collectively who, um, who don't get in that noise. Cause I think it just for my own serenity, I, I like I'm, I'm living by this new rule that I've decided in the past week that I'm not offended. I'm not offended over anything. I'm not offended if someone flicks me off. I'll be like, yeah, they flicked me off. Like I refuse to give power away to the noise. Well, that's a good idea. Um, and, uh, you know, perspective is really what you're talking about. And uh, I am a huge believer in perspective. I think the, the further back you pull the lens, the more you understand the world. And it's one of the reasons that I have for uh, coming up on 11 years now, uh, I, I have an orphanage I operate in Haiti and I go there every month. And I say this only as answer to your question. I'm there every month. Uh, we have 52 children. Their issues are about hunger, are about medical care, are about uh, um, trying to get them educated, are about extreme and awful poverty, second poorest country in the world. And when I'm there, uh, I don't, I don't get CNN or Fox or anything like that. There's no way, anyhow. We don't have internet. We don't have computers. Whatever. I'm just trying to help children. You know, I consider to be like my extended family now. I mean, I've brought all them into the orphanage. We're raising them. We're trying to get them college educated. And when those become your problems and your challenges, you see how quickly you can lose. You know, whether you care about who won a ball game, who won a debate, who's the biggest star in the world at the moment or anything. It all just seems very small. And so I look for uh, experiences that can give me that big, wide lens and can make me feel small. I, I enjoy feeling um, put in my place and, and being reminded how small my life is because it comes with the sort of grandeur of how big the world is. And how amazing the world is. Uh, so it's not a put down. It's something that really helps you say, okay, you know, those worries I had yesterday are just not that important. If I can help this, this, this child here and I'm going to get him fed and that belly that's swelled from malnutrition is going to go down and he's going to smile and we're going to, how can anything I have in my life be as important as that? Mm -hmm. No, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, and I, I love that you're doing like I've been to Iraq several times in the last few years, 
last time I went alone to open up mental health clinics for Yazidi women. And when I go, it's almost like nothing. I don't even hear anything else. I do need to ask you, though, because I had real challenges when I got back to the States getting people, uh, you know, you see it, you experience it, you go to Haiti. Yeah. And did you, you, at least I had this experience, you have a lot more than me because you've been to Haiti a lot more than I've been to Iraq. But did you have a point where you first were trying to get people on board with helping people in Haiti and then you were like, enough is enough, I'm just going to do it? Or were you, did you go to Haiti and just go, oh, I'm just going to do it? Well, uh, no, I mean, first of all, there's an advantage and Haiti's a lot closer than Iraq. And uh, so I have been able to bring people down and I've learned in over a decade that nothing tells a story like being there. So my all I really try to do is just I put all my effort in trying to get them to come with me. I don't have to talk. If I say, listen, just come down for a day. I've had people come literally for a day to, hey, come down on a Saturday to go back on a Sunday. I said, just come down. Give me 12 hours. It'll take care of itself. And to a person, it has never failed when they see these children and how happy they are and how joyous they are, despite having no computers, no phone, no, no, no Internet, no television, no parents, no shoes in many cases. And yet they're they're there. It's pure childhood. Mm. They're just loving children. And nobody has ever gone home from there without being moved or without wanting to help. And so my big challenge is just getting getting somebody to come. But I've learned that, you know, you better have the passion in your own heart. If you want to try to do good, you're going to have to be ready to do it alone. Mm-hmm. If all you want to do is, well, I want to do it if six other people want to do it, that's not going to work because sometimes those six other people are going to find something else that's more important to them. But if this is really truly important to you, you need to be able to toe the line alone, even though hopefully you won't have to. And there have been many times in the past 10 years that I have been left towing the line alone, both you know, time-wise, financially, everything like that. And that's okay. I'm fine with that. And if that's the way the world is going to be, that's fine. But meanwhile, if I can get people to come, like you, one day, yeah, I'm down. Uh, you know, I know they'll. I know the rest will. Their eyes will be open, and the rest will take care of itself. And what was your first uh, trip to Haiti? What was your experience? Right after the earthquake of 2010, that's what brought me there. I was there two weeks after the earthquake because a local pastor had thought that this orphanage that he had operated had been destroyed, and all the kids had been killed. And I couldn't imagine. I mean, how could just kids being killed under rubble, and nobody knew that they were there, alive or dead? And so I helped arrange to get a small plane into Haiti, and I knew a a senator who was able to clear us some military time. We flew in together, me, him, and a couple other people, and went to this orphanage, not knowing if we were going to find people dead or alive. And and, uh, fortunately, it had not collapsed, And uh, but it was overrun. There were hundreds of people there now trying to get food and water or anything like that. And just I've never seen devastation like I saw after the Haiti earthquake in 2010, Mm. especially just a couple weeks after it had happened and there were still people bleeding out in the street and, 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 you know, everything was piles of rubble wherever you looked. And there was a dust that, that hung over the whole country just from all the, uh, you know, crushed concrete that was there. Your, your face was constantly, you were constantly wiping dust out of your eyes and, and, uh, you know, people begging for food and begging for water. And if they saw like a trickle coming out of a street from a sewer somewhere, they'd run with a cup and try to get it. And, um, I just never stopped going back. I mean, I went 
And then I just kept coming back. And, and within a few months, the pastor who was in his 80s at that time basically turned the place over to me. He said, if you want to run it, you can run it. You didn't have any money. And I took it over. I've been running it ever since. And um, we've grown it up to be quite a much bigger place and better place. We built a school and kitchens and dormitories and toilets and showers, all of which none of it have existed before. And um, now it's, you know, it's my life. I mean, I'll be there the rest of my life. And, uh, and the kids that we have 52 children, and that's kind of our, my wife and my extended family. And they all have college scholarships waiting for them. Uh, wow. here in America. And, um, that's, you know, that's my third act, you know, that's beautiful. And there's a need, right? A big need for people to actually be of service and help and reach out. Uh, f- some friends of mine, a good friend of mine, uh, has two kids, beautiful kids he adopted from Haiti. Um, and I got, I have a bunch of friends, interestingly, that are really passionate about Haiti uh, you may know some of them. I connect with you offline, but pretty good people to know who are also rallying behind. And I'd love to go at some point. But eventually you adopted Chica. Yeah. Chica was uh, born three days before the earthquake. And uh, on her third day of her life, she was in this tiny cinder block house with her mother and lying on her chest. And the earthquake hit and the house collapsed around them. The roof fell backwards. It was a piece, piece of tin fell backwards and the walls fell down and they were left like naked to the sky, you know, but alive. So the third night of her life, she slept out in the sugarcane fields in a little bed of leaves. I always say she was born tough, you know, third day of your life, you're sleeping out in the fields. And two years later, her mother died giving birth to a baby brother because there was no doctor present because there's never a doctor present for poor women out in the provinces like that. And and, uh, she was left an orphan and she was brought to us. And uh, she was, for a couple of years, the bossiest, loudest little kid we had. She told everybody where to go and what to do. And she was funny that way. She was like Ethel Merman in size one shoes, you know. And then um, uh, when she was five years old, uh, she developed a brain tumor. Um, and we brought her to America thinking, well, they'll take care of it. You know, it's America. We have American medicine. And it turned out to be something that was uh, a death sentence. It's called DIPG. Usually kids die within four months of getting it. And they told us, just take her back to Haiti and let her die. There's nothing anybody can do. But I knew how tough she was, how stubborn she was, and what a fighter she was. I said, no, she'll fight, we'll fight. And uh, she ended up living two years. Uh, she, She never went home. She just stayed with us. And we traveled around the world trying to find a cure for her. Uh, and she lasted, you know, almost a record uh, for someone with that particular disease. And uh, along the way, we became a family, very unlikely family. And my wife and I were already in our 50s. And here was this little girl who didn't look like us or talk like us or sound like us. But we couldn't have loved her anymore. She was a spitting image of us. And she taught us a million things about life and family and what's really important. And, um, you know, we had those blessed two years. And we, I say in the book, we didn't lose a child. We were given one. I wrote a book about it to, to pay, to create a new fund for our kids and medical uh, needs. And so all the proceeds from the book go to help any of the other 52 kids who develop medical problems as they will, like Chica did. And it's called Finding Chica. And that's the, uh, that's the story of our time with her. When you found out that she had a, you know, 
basically a death sentence with a tumor. And was this the first time that you had brought someone to the U.S. who was living with you? And Yeah. Yeah, we'd have brought some of the other kids once or twice for, you know, some checkups and medical things, but nothing that was life-threatening like that. Um, and we were, you know, kind of blind to it. And we thought, oh, well, she'll be back, you know, in a couple months, she'll be back. And then when they told us how serious it was after they opened her up, we realized she was never going home. And suddenly you're in your mid fifties, you, you know, you you got a life of just two people. And suddenly now it's three everywhere you go, three at the table, three in the car, you know, three, uh, three in the bedroom, you know, so we put a little bed in front of our bed and now you wake up and she's crawling into your bed and, you know, it's delightful in its way. And we, you know, we got married late, so we never had children of our own. And suddenly here was this whole, you know, we had all that experience with her, but there was always a shadow hanging around like, yeah, but it may not last tomorrow. Maybe the day that she's gone, the next day, maybe the day that she's gone. And so we really lived very intensely for those two years with her and, and wrung every ounce of joy out of, out of that, those moments. And, uh, and they were joyous. You know, we were, we were given the blessing of a child and, um, and uh, she was a pretty special kid. Yeah, I saw the uh, videos that you would post and you ended up posting on your Facebook and Instagram. And it's really beautiful. And it's on one hand, it's like, oh, my gosh, like, look at this girl. She's so spunky and fiery and and amazing. And then on the other hand, it's really sad, right? Just not just sad that, you know, here's um, someone who could really have a shot at this life was essentially at three years old being, you know, on the street, so to speak. And, and what do you, what do you make of this, right? Like in this, I know there's wisdom and all of it, but just this experience, you look at it now at the time, were you able to see how beautiful it was or was it later on looking back that you? Yeah. I mean, there were plenty of moments where, you know, when, when she looked up at us one night and she said, how did you find me? And I said, Oof, how do we find I just, ch- I just got the chills. Yeah. And I, I said, you mean, how did you come to us? And she kind of nodded, but I realized she meant it the way she asked it. How did you find me? Because for, you know, orphans, like the kids that we take in, they don't really remember where they come from or their natural mothers and fathers, if they leave them at one or two, and so they, they have this image of us like riding through the woods on a white horse or something. And, oh, there's a child. Let's pick it up and bring it because they see that in the movie. And um, that's why I called the book Finding Chica, because she was so interested in where, you know, how, how did I get here? You know, and she would always when we walked in, she would always have a blanket over her hiding from us so that we would discover her. You know, we'd go, where's Chica? We don't know where Chica is. And you'd see this thing shaking like that, you know, laughing. And then she'd throw it off and she'd say, here am I, you know, or something like that, because her English wasn't, you know, her, her first language. And, and uh, you know, you had beautiful moments like that that you knew were beautiful. You didn't need to wait until she died to, to have perspective on it. But by the same token, you also are always churning and trying to find something and trying to find a cure. You're always thinking, is there another doctor I can call? Is there, I mean, we moved to Germany and lived there for a while just to try to get her immunology treatments. We were in Cologne uh, where there's a program a very, very good program, an immunology program for DIPG kids. But, you know, there was always another, there was a London treatment and there was New York and there was Texas and there was Mexico and there was, 
you're, I mean, you're spending so much time just trying to figure out what to do, but, um, but we still had plenty of time to appreciate her and how special she was. And, uh, it was it was a it was a gift. And is your wife's voice at all in Finding Chica? Because I imagine, oh yeah, she, she, was it kind of co-authored in a way, or no, 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 she didn't co. She didn't get involved with the writing, but she was such an integral part of our raising. And I, 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 I break the book into like seven things that Chica taught me because she was seven years old when she died. So seven little lessons, and one of them is was about my wife and how much you appreciate your spouse when a child comes into your life. And if you're like me and like a lot of guys, I think sometimes you, you when you were younger, anyhow, you worried like, oh, if we have kids, then she's going to be paying attention to other kids all the time and not me. And this beautiful thing that we have between each other is now going to have to be shared. It's such stupid, immature thinking. You know, really what happens is your life becomes so much richer and that, that growing from two to three or two to four or whatever the case is enhances your relationship and makes you, realize how precious your spouse is and how lucky you are to be with them. And watching her with Chica was a, was such a gift to see her become a mother. And so, uh, yeah, that was the sixth thing that I said that Chica taught me. So what, yeah, what, in terms of, uh, also just you being a parent during that period of time, because you don't have kids, anything that you realized, uh, in your parenting style that was a little surprising to you? Um, that I was good at it. You know, I thought I would be bad at it. But yeah, I mean, all of it was just special. Well, Mitch, thank you for coming on Always Evolving. It's been a pleasure. Everyone check out Finding Chica. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. And we'll uh, connect soon. Thanks, Coach Mike. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, anytime you want to chat again, I'm here for you. You got it, buddy. Thanks for listening to Always Evolving. Follow me on social media, Coach Mike Bayer and... Feel free to reshare anything you find helpful or useful on any of the podcasts uh, of Always Evolving. Also, I have my free Tuesday empowerment group at 5 p.m. Pacific time. You just go to coachmikebear.com to join. And I have some really great guests coming up over the next few weeks. So I can't wait for you guys to check it out. Thanks again. The Always Evolving with Coach Mike Bear podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional, medical, financial, legal, or other advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professionals.